So this morning I'm going to share a, a message that the title is, is pretty big. I'm going to share with you the goal of life. You know, every time I think of this, I think of this picture or cartoon you may have seen where there's this man climbing up a mountain, and at the top of the man there sits the guy, you know, in a robe and the long white hair and the beard, and he's going up there to, to ask the question, what is the goal or what is the meaning or what is the purpose of life? And he struggles to the top, and when he gets up there, he asks the guy, and the guy looks at him and says, I have no idea. So many of us are like that. We don't know what the goal of life is. What is your goal of life? You know, when I was younger, we can go back to college, somebody would say, what's the goal of life? And we really didn't bother getting that serious about things. But we would say stupid things like, the goal of life, party hard and die. Anybody ever say something that stupid besides me? You don't want anybody to know? My goal in life is to be rich. My goal in life is to get married. My goal in life is to be healthy and live a long life. My goal in life is a great big house with a big garage with a big car. My goal in life, you can fill in the blank. Most of us have thought something like that. Some of us might say something, I don't know. Never really gave it much thought. Quite honestly, that probably would have been me. If I'd have came up with an answer, it would have probably been stupid and sarcastic. But I hadn't given it much thought. Some of us might even say, I don't have one, and it really doesn't matter. Well, we'll be, we'll be. Okay, sarah, sarah. Well, that's the only one I can be pretty sure will happen. What will be, will be if we don't have a goal in life. Shortly after I became a Christian, and I can't even remember how long ago, but somebody in our church down in the old building, it might have been Denise, some of you might remember, they made a quilt, and they wanted us to have a scripture verse that we would want on that quilt. And I was a little bit worried because I didn't have a whole lot of favorite scripture verses because I didn't have a whole lot of scripture. But one scripture, a little section of scripture, had stuck in my head when I had read it. It was in Philippians. And it talked about a goal. And at that time in my life, especially, I, was, I, was, I, I liked the idea of a goal. I liked the idea of a prize. I liked to compete. I was competitive. Performance was a big deal because I was so insecure. That was the only way I felt good about myself. So when I read these verses, they probably didn't have the appropriate meaning to me but they fit something in my head that I like this section of Scripture. Over the years, as I've gotten to understand them better, it's probably taking on more meaning. And I do not pretend to have it mastered. It's a continual work of progress, but it's one of those Scriptures that I come back to a lot because people ask about favorite Scriptures or people talk about their life verse. And every time I do, it kind of reminds me, Mike, you're back on track. Are you still on track? How far off track are you? The primary verse is in Philippians 3, verse 14. And really, I, it, it's a section of a scripture we'll look at a little bit more detail, but Philippians 3, 14 says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press forward toward the goal to win the prize. I like that. Even when I didn't get it, I like that. 
If I have a life verse, that would be it. As I said earlier, though, I, sometimes I allow the life that we're living on a day-to-day basis to creep in. And my focus, my priorities change. And I lose track of the goal. I lose track of the prize. And I realize I'm not pressing in. And if I am pressing in, it's to the wrong thing. Not necessarily a bad thing. Not necessarily an evil thing. But the wrong thing. Priority thing. Today I want to share with you the message, the goal of your life from Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to look at most of the chapter, but we're really going to be focusing on primarily verses 12, 13, and 14. So if you do have your Bibles, you can open to that. Most of the scriptures will be on the screen behind me as we go forward. Philippians, as are many of the books in the New Testament, are letters that are written to groups of people. This letter is written by Paul to the church in Philippi. And, and it really the first couple chapters, Paul's just sharing his heart. And it's really significant to remind yourself, especially as we begin to look at some of the verses, that Paul's writing this. He's been, been in the ministry probably somewhere around 30 years since his Damascus Road experience, maybe a little longer. And how many of you know his experience in ministry hasn't been all that much fun in the natural unless you get off on beatings and persecution, being thrown in jail, getting stoned, being left for dead. It's been tough. And right now when he's writing this letter to the Philippian church, the people of Philippi, he's in jail. He's in Rome. He's not sure for sure what's going to happen. He may be that close to becoming a martyr. He doesn't know. And yet he writes these words of such encouragement to this church, to this group of people. He's telling them about how important they are to him how he thinks about them, and it almost, you can almost see it brings a smile to his face to think of these people who have believed, who are walking out their faith, how they've supported his ministry, how they're concerned about his well-being. And he writes all these encouraging words, and he continues to point them to the truth of what they know. He talks about the gospel message. He encourages them to be like Christ. Be like Christ. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us to transform us into the image of Christ. And he's saying, be like Christ. It doesn't just happen. It takes diligence. It takes focus. It takes priority. So I'm going to start reading in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Rejoice. He's sitting in a prison cell. Rejoice. Rejoice in God. Rejoice in all things. Rejoice. Finally, rejoice. Now, he's a typical preacher because he says the word finally about two, three more times after this. But what he's saying is, we're to this point. Now, finally, here I want to make a point. And the point is, rejoice in the Lord. What do you rejoice in? What do we rejoice in? 
Well, a lot of us rejoice in all the good things if we rejoice at all. In our culture today, people are looking to be happy. Matter of fact, if you Google the good life or the purpose of life, the goal of life, I Googled the goal of life, and they got all these images and pictures of cute sayings. And If I had time, I'd have put a bunch of them on the board, but they all said about the same thing. The goal of life is to be happy. Be happy. Find nirvana, the happy place. Find your happy place. Whatever it takes to get there, be happy. I just discovered in my life it's not that easy to be happy every day. And when I am happy, it's kind of fleeting. So if that's the goal of life, it doesn't seem really worthy of being the goal of my life. In Romans 8.28, these words were written by Paul to another church in Rome. He said, And we know that all things work for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. All things. It is easy. I mean, you'll probably hear it if you watch any sports. Anybody going to watch sports on TV? But you will hear this phrase when they interview somebody after the game. Maybe. God is so good. How many of you know it's usually the winning team that says that? So I want to know in the other locker room, is God not good? We fall into the same trap. Something good happens. Praise God, He is so good. How many of us know when something really rotten happens, praise God, He is so good? Paul is saying, rejoice in all things. All things will eventually work for good for those who believe. From God's perspective. So the command even here to the church in Philippi is the same to us today. What do you rejoice in? Do you rejoice in all things? Doesn't mean we're happy in all things. Doesn't mean they're all pleasant. But God will work for good in those who believe, those who hear His children. I am a child of God. I'm going to rejoice in whatever it is. When God allows bad things into our lives, challenges, tests, He has a purpose for them. Or He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't allow it. He could put us in a holy bubble if He wanted to. But he doesn't. We need to learn and rejoice in all things. You know what rejoicing in all things really does? It demonstrates how much we really trust God. How much do we really trust Him? If you're like me, you've probably said something like this at different times. God, where in the world are you? Or I sometimes say this, and hopefully you know when I do, usually I'm joking, but not always. God, what are you thinking? Maybe you should have consulted me first. I got a better idea. Rejoice in all things demonstrates how much we trust Him. And this concept of rejoicing in all things takes diligence. It takes hard work. It takes staying aware. Because it's so easy when these things in life come to get thrown off track. And then he says, beware. Now in this day and in this culture, what he's specifically talking about, those dogs that he's referring to, weren't four-legged animals. They were the religious leaders of the day. That's who he was calling the dogs, the legalistic Pharisees of the day. Matter of fact, that even, there was even this group, and he's addressing them, were Jews, and they would probably have agreed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they would say things like this. To receive the full blessings of the Messiah, you must first become a Jew. 
You need to get circumcised. You need to go through the process and become a Jew. And he's saying, do not listen to that stuff. They are dogs. They are the false circumcision. Beware of people like that. Beware of people who will give teaching, false teaching, false encouragement that there's anything or any way other than Jesus Christ to enter in to the kingdom of God. And then he says in the next verse, we are the true circumcision. And he's talking about us as believers. We are the true circumcision. Because it's a heart thing. It's not an external thing. It's an internal thing. He says those are the true circumcision. Us. There's three things he listed that we do as the true circumcision. One, we worship God in spirit. Now it may sound like, what does that mean? Well, hopefully we were worshiping God in spirit. We were worshiping Him out of the internal, what's inside of us. We were worshiping Him and giving thanks, giving praise, giving honor and glory because that's what's inside of us. The Spirit of God is just causing it to come out of us as we are praising Him. It's not about external things. And again, you can imagine the Pharisees and the legalistic Jews, everything was about external. Can you imagine what this would have been a slap in the face to those that were involved with all of the temple worship? You know, do it this, do that, do it just right. Then we do this. All about works. Worship was all works. No, he's saying that's the false circumcision. Matter of fact, that word where he says circumcision there is it's the false, the mutilators. He says no, true circumcision, internal. It says we rejoice in Christ or we give glory to Him. In other words, Jesus is the source of our joy. We've heard the verse that says the joy of the Lord is my strength. Yes, what a blessing. We gain strength in our spirit when our joy is in Jesus Christ and what He has done. Who, he's, who He is, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice who died for me. Irregardless of circumstance, if my focus is on that, joy should just rise up in us. And he's saying that's those who are of the true circumcision, the joy and rejoicing. And he says we put no confidence in the flesh. That's the third thing. We know enough to know that it's impossible to do anything about gaining righteousness through our own works. There's nothing wrong with good works. Good works should follow a believer. But if a motivation is somehow or other that's making me better in God's eyes, we are totally deceived. And that's what he's saying. It's not about external things. It's not about works. It's about what's inside. And Paul goes on, and sometimes we all need to have this reminder because we have a tendency sometimes to think, you know, I'm okay. I'm pretty good. Shoot, I was born a fill-in-the-blank Christian. I went to that church regularly, sort of. I did the things, baptized, Sunday school, conference. I did those things. I try to help little old ladies walk across the road when I see them. I'm a pretty good guy. And anybody who has that mindset needs to read the words that Paul next wrote, starting in verse 4. He says, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more. Sounds a little arrogant almost, doesn't it? I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the rules of their religion. I am of the nation of Israel. In other words, I am one of God's chosen people. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin that had a very godly, good reputation. 
I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And what he's saying there is, I'm a Hebrew who is not compromising in the day and age and the culture we live in. Believe it or not, there were Hebrews, Jews, who were supposedly Messianic, had accepted Jesus, but they wanted to fit into the Greek culture of the day. Some of them to the extent, you know what they were having done? They were having surgeries to reverse the circumcision, to fit in. Now, we might not do that, but what do we do to fit in? He said, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to law, I am a Pharisee. I understand, I know, and I follow. And he says, to zeal, man, I was a persecutor of the church. I was passionate about persecuting those people who were talking about the way and talking about Jesus. As to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. Wow. Whatever you and I think our qualifications are to be into the kingdom of God, short of Jesus Christ, we are wrong. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. Nothing you can do to get in. Paul's setting himself up here as a standard. If you want to talk about earthly things, you know, no matter what you think, there's always someone who does more good deeds than you. Always. There's always someone who's smarter than you, more educated than you. There's always someone who has a bigger house than you, a bigger car, a bigger this, a bigger that. Always. If you think that that's what you have to be to become part of God's family, we're deceived. And Paul's driving home that point that we are deceived. Whatever we claim to think is going to make us good enough, we're wrong. Paul then talks about his new view of his qualifications, starting in verse 7. But ever th whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish or dung, depending on your translation, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, and being conformed even to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is telling these people that he's writing this letter to, and he's telling us, if you think there's anything in your pedigree, if there's anything, you think there's anything you've done, that makes you deserving of the resurrection to a new life in Christ, you're wrong. It's not the way it is. Actually, it's a negative, a distraction. You know, Paul first, he says, all things. I count all things. In other words, all that stuff that he had just told us, kind of tell him about his pedigree, he says, count them as loss. And then he goes on and, and says in the next verse, more than that count all things. I don't believe he's just repeating himself about his pedigree. I believe he's saying everything, whoops, that was me. Everything that's happened to me since I became a believer, all of the persecution, all of the beatings, all of the times of being cold, all of the times of being shipwrecked, all the things, anything and everything that's happened to me, I count it all as loss. It means nothing in terms of my righteousness 
or my salvation. All things. In, Revel- or in <coughs> the chapter 3, in the verses I just read, he says, so that I may win Christ, that I may be found in Him, that I may gain Christ through faith in Christ. Righteousness that comes from God through faith, basis of faith. I want to know Him. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. I want to die like He died. Get the idea that He was focused. He was passionate. It was the most important thing in His life. This is what drove Him. That He may know Him. He leaves no doubt. Many of us are willing to take that kind of stand when everything's going great. When we're when we're getting blessings from every direction. But then when it turns, and all of a sudden it's not quite that way, is our passion still there? Is it still as strong? Is our confidence still there? Is our trust in Him still there? Or does it begin to Paul's life is a warning to us. He says, in all things, keep this as your priority. Keep this as your goal. He wanted to be like Jesus in every way including his sufferings, even including his death. Do we? Do we? Thankfully, most of us will not ever experience crucifixion. But we will suffer for Christ as we stand for Christ. Now, one thing, talk, I want to make sure, he didn't doubt his resurrection. You know, he, he, he says that I can attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's not that he doubted it. He knew about salvation. He knew about the resurrection. He knew he was going to be resurrected. The key word there is he wanted to attain to it. And it's like grasping something that it's already yours, but you haven't got it yet. And in the next couple of verses that spoke so much to me, he's kind of making reference to probably most theologians, the Grecian games, the Grecian races, the Grecian Olympics, if you would. And he's using this analogy of a runner. And he's using an analogy. Before we read the verses, it's as if there's a race that's going to take place. But to even get into the race, you've got to be invited into the race. And that's ultimately, seeing the invitation into the race and accepting the race, you've already won. The prize is yours. The only problem is, you haven't ran the race yet, and the prize is at the end of the race, it's at the finish line. You know, I'm a golfer. I'm a golf fan. I mean, I'd rather watch some big golf tournaments than the Vikings for the Packers. Pray for me. Pray for me. But they have a tournament at the end of the year. It's called the FedEx Cup. To get into the FedEx Cup, and your invitation is dependent upon the whole season's results. 150 players in the FedEx standards, and then they have playoffs. But you know what? Once you're in, you've already won. The number one winner who's going to win at the end, he's going to get a check for $15 million. Nuts. The first guy's going to win $5 million. The third place guy's going to win $4 million. $3.5 million. $3 million. If I'm number 150 and I'm in my teeth, I've already won. $70,000. 
They've already won it. Know where you fit? Kind of the picture that Paul is trying to give us that there's this race, and you've been invited into it, and you've accepted the invitation, and you're already a winner. Paul knows he's saved. He knows he's someday. He knows it's there. But just because he knows that, he doesn't go there. I'm in. I think I'm going to sit back now and relax. I don't have to do anything anymore. He said, I see the prize. It's my prize, but it's at the finish line. I am going to stay and I am going to run the race to win the race. Give everything I have, every amount of energy, every breath of every muscle in my body, every nerve in my body, and when I get to the finish line, I'm going to lunge into the finish line to get the prize. Because his eye is on the prize. With that, let's read the next three verses. And as I said, I didn't understand all this. I probably still don't. But I know it says this, that I have already obtained it. The prize is there. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. The resurrection is there. It's already there for me. And he says, not that I've already obtained it, or I've already become perfect, the word mature, that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. When you look at these words, these verses. He is first demonstrating a spiritual maturity and saying, you know, I haven't got it yet. I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to receive a resurrected body. I'm not there yet. Not that I press on because it's not. But reward in heaven for all of us. If you remember what we talked about in Revelation, we know that there is a reward. He says, I'm going to press on. There's more. There's more that I need. There's more to hold on to. He says, I'm going to press on. I'm going forward. His all-consuming desire, he is consumed with that one thing. I'm going forward. I'm going to get the prize. I'm going forward. It's worth everything. Nothing's going to stop me. Getting thrown into the sea is not going to stop me. Getting bit, that's not going to stop me. Thrown in prison, that's not going to stop me. Being ridiculed at your family picnic, that's not going to stop me. Being made fun of by my friends, that's not going to stop me. By having everybody at work think I'm a Jesus freak idiot, that's not going to stop me. I'm going forward. I'm going to keep my eye on the prize, and I am going to press on towards the goal that God called me to. I'm going forward. That's what he's saying to us and challenging us with. He wants to lay hold of that. And it should never, ever cause any type of passivity in us because we're saved. We're going forward. We're going on to what he has for us, his singleness of purpose. I love those words, reaching forward to what lies ahead. He says, first of all, I'm not going to look back. I'm not going to look back. Why isn't he going to look back? Because of all the bad things? Yeah. Because of some good things? Yeah. We look back. 
Man, some of us have disqualified ourselves from service because of things in our past. If you looked around the room, not everybody in here was born a Christian and lived a perfect life. Some of you were bad. Some of you were really, really bad. I wasn't that good. This is where my mother usually goes, amen, she just nods. It didn't disqualify us. We're not going to look back and let those bad things stop us. We are new creatures in Christ. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We have a calling and a mission. We have a destiny in Christ. I'm not going to look back and let those things stop me. But sometimes we look back and say, man, I was good. That was good. I did that all on my own strength. All on my own. Who needs God when things are going good? When things are going great? I think when Paul rattled off all of his qualifications in the natural, we sometimes need to be reminded over and over those things in the natural keep us from Jesus. Sometimes it's hard hard to share the good news of the gospel with someone who's got a great job, making a great living, in love with their spouse, got a few kids. Who needs Jesus? Got a college education? Got letters after their name? Who needs Jesus? Those things can be a real hindrance to accepting Christ. And notice when we read these scriptures that the call is only in Christ Jesus. And the prize. The reason I thought it was good to do this right after our final chapters in Revelation is we talked about the prize. A crown of glory awaits all of those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There are rewards in heaven for us when we get to heaven. There is a victory over sin and death, part of the prize. We're going to be together with all the saints that have gone before us and with the angels. We'll finally get to really know what an angel looks like. It's all part of the prize. And there will be total freedom. We will be living in a perfect environment forever with total freedom from all evil all sickness, all disease, all sadness. I'm going to keep my eye on the prize. When things get tough here on earth, we're only going to live a few years. The prize is eternal in heaven. What, do we, what are we going to allow to move into first place in our lives and push that prize somewhere down the list? Paul's saying, there isn't anything, anything that I'm going to put before keeping my eye on the prize, on the goal, and going forward. It's that all-consuming desire, and this is where it's really convicting in me, for me. Do I have an all-consuming desire like that? Or do I just have it on certain days? Or are there a whole other thing, a lot of other things that are my consuming desires in life, and this isn't it? That's why these verses are good for me to read regularly because it reminds me of those things that are getting to be in a wrong place in my life. I'm going to close by reading the rest of the chapter. It's just a few verses. But in it, you'll see that we are challenged by Paul and then we were reminded by Paul of a few things. Starting in verse 15, he says, Let us therefore... As many are perfect, and I wish, the word really should be mature. Let any, 
therefore, or let us therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. He's talking about that attitude that he's been talking about the whole chapter. A passion. Keeping your eye on the prize. He says, if you haven't got that attitude, God's going to get you. He'll wake you up. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Man, I read that and my first thought is, am I living a life that I would have the boldness to say, follow my example. Live a life like I'm living. And if you do that, you will keep your eye on the prize. You will attain to the prize. You will get the prize. That's the challenge Paul is saying. As believers, that should be us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even again with weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship, and here's a reminder, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject himself or subject all things to himself. The task Paul lays out here sounds pretty daunting, but not impossible. But it takes a passion. It takes a real realization and understanding of what the goal is and what the prize is so that anything else that comes across our path that would draw us away or hinder us from going forward, that motivation, that desire is overwhelming. It's almost as if those things are like flies. We just swat them out of the way. We're going forward. And I know none of us do it perfectly. I know I don't do it perfectly. But that doesn't mean it still should not be our desire. To live our lives is an example for others to follow. For parents or grandparents, do you want your kids following your life style the way it is now? Or are there things there that you know you should change? Things that we know we should remove? Things that should be reprioritized at least? Are there things that the world is watching in you and me because they do watch? Are they looking at us and seeing compromise? Or are they seeing somebody that's sold out to Jesus Christ and keeping their goal and the prize in focus? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the encouragement that Paul gives us. The reminder that he gives us that there is a prize that's worth everything in this life. I thank you, Lord, that all who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior by grace through faith have already won the prize. But, Lord, forgive us when we get lazy. Forgive us when we get distracted. Forgive us when we allow that compromising spirit to get a hold of us. Father God, help us by your spirit. Give us the grace to refocus on the goal of the prize. 
the upward calling of Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for each one of us here to have a fresh vision of what you have for us. Father, I thank you that you've equipped us with your Holy Spirit and the Word of God to live lives that would be pleasing unto you and lives that would truly enable us to say to others, follow my example. Follow my example. Lord, I pray now for our time of fellowship that we'll be following. We pray you would bless the food that we're going to be eating. Bless our conversations. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.